0: So, uh, man, it's, it's good to be back with you guys. I know some of you were back uh, past weekend. More and more people are starting to come back now with the semester starting. And uh, I love getting to just worship together with you guys. You are um, actually family to me. You know, like we have our blood family, of course, but as uh, children of God, we have been adopted together into one family. And I think that's part of why it's so valuable for us to have these uh, times where we get together and just worship, uh, worship the Lord and get to learn together. So, um, I want to ask you guys, anyone out there fans of like fantasy or sci-fi movies or anything like that? Like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Harry Potter? Any, okay, okay, yeah, I think I, I've talked to most of you guys like one of those things at least. Uh, I, I'm, I'm into all of them. I'm personally, Lord of the Rings is my favorite, but I also love Star Wars. Harry Potter is pretty good too. Um, I, I like these movies and these stories uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, but one of the reasons I think that they resonate so deeply with people is because even though they take place in a fake world and have all sorts of like totally impossible things that happen, they communicate themes that are very uh, present in our real world, right? And so one of these themes that's often communicated is this battle of good versus evil, right? Like, you see that very clearly in all of the examples I was talking about, right? Uh, you have, you know, in Lord of the Rings, you have Frodo. He's kind of just this simple, uh, you know, peace-loving hobbit, humble guy, uh, and he's trying to take down this powerful, uh, hateful, cruel, dark lord, Sauron. Or, uh, you know, you have in Star Wars, kind of just this run-of-the-mill guy, Luke Skywalker, living out on the outer rim, and uh, he, he just loves his friends and wants to protect them, and he's battering, uh, battling the, the wicked Darth Vader and, and uh, Emperor Palpatine. Or you have Harry Potter, you know, a boy who lived through attempted infanticide, and uh, I'm hopefully not spoiling anything for anyone there, but uh, <laughs> who goes on to later try to, to take down the guy that wanted to murder him as a baby. And uh, you know, all, all these kind of things, right? In all these stories, though, there's a very clear line between good and evil, right? Like, they make it super obvious and super easy for us to know who's good and bad. Like, even just, like, look at these guys, right? <laughs> I mean, like, they, they're not they're not leaving any ambiguity. You know as soon as you look at those guys that they're bad. For, for some reason, um, they seem like black and red are the colors they like to use to communicate that. I don't know what that means about the University of Cincinnati. Uh... Uh, but <laughs> for whatever reason, those are like the bad guy colors. I don't know what that says about me either, because that's actually my favorite color combo. But um, n- nonetheless, right, L- like we like these stories because uh, they-, they give us a very clear hero to root for. There's a very clear villain. There's very clear lines drawn between what's good and evil. But the real world isn't always that simple, You know, in real life, most of us believe that there is such a thing as good or evil um, and that there is such a thing as right or wrong, but the lines aren't always so clearly drawn as we may like them to be. Bad guys don't walk around wearing black armor, you know. Real people are complex and often we're conflicted in our own hearts and minds about what morality actually even is. You know, most of us want to be good, but there's actually a lot of different opinions out there about what that even means. How do you define that? How do we know what's actually right and what's actually wrong? How do we know what's actually good and what's actually evil? Now, when I ask that question, you might be like, uh, Grant, you're making this a lot more complex than it actually is. We just naturally know what's right and wrong. You have a conscience to so listen to it, and you'll be good. I was talking to my, uh, one of my brothers about this, and that was basically the, the take that he had on it. And to some degree, I would agree with that, right? Like, humans do have a certain natural sense of right and wrong that we call our conscience. Uh, Paul even wrote something about this in his letter to the Romans. You see in uh, Romans two fourteen and 15, he says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, right, so people that, that didn't have God's written law, uh, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness that their thoughts, sometimes accusing them or at other times even defending them. So Paul's acknowledging this fact that, yeah, there's, there's some aspect of God's law written on our hearts. Remember, we are people that are created in God's image. We're like him in certain ways. But uh, th- this, ex- this explains for us why we even see a certain amount of uh, universal morality, right? Like, Like morality can definitely change from culture to culture, but there are certain things that pretty much every culture would agree on are good or bad. However, this natural sense that we have is definitely far from perfect and being a great guide for us in understanding what's good and evil. And as a matter of fact, it can even become uh, calloused. It can become corrupted and darkened to the point where it gets worse and worse and worse at us even being able to understand what's good and what's evil. Right? Look at this, for example, in Ephesians 4, 17-19. She says, So I say this, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You see, so Paul is writing this Ephesian church. He's trying to help them say, hey, I don't want you to be living like the rest of the culture that's around you. Why? Why? Because this culture has a darkened understanding of what's actually right. They have hard hearts, and with that, they've actually become calloused. And so you know what a callous is, right? Like it's a, basically something that builds up on your skin to, to stop sensitivity in a certain area, right? So if you are out working with your hands all the time, you're going to build up calluses so they don't get ripped up. They're, they're going to be less sensitive. And as we, are, as we uh, continue to live in sin, as we choose sin, we're around all the time, we can start to become calloused to that kind of thing. And so we see here that they had a futile mind, they had a darkened understanding, they had hardness of heart, and that their conscience was not sensitive to sin. And frankly, this can happen to any of us. So to say that we, just by ourselves alone, saying, well, I'm going to look within for, for trying to figure out what's right or wrong, I'm going to trust my gut, I'm going to go with my heart, that's not always going to land us in the right spot. You know, there, there's no doubt that the darkening uh, and, uh, of our understanding and hardening of our heart happens. And you'll notice that different cultures at different times and different places have had different views about what's right and wrong. Think about it, right? Like if we all just naturally knew what was right and wrong, we, would, we actually would have completely universal morality through time and space. But there's a lot of things that we see as immoral now that at one point were not seen as immoral. As a matter of fact, sometimes they were even seen as good. Okay, I'll take uh, slavery for example. It's MLK weekend. Praise the Lord. I'm thankful for what God has done in this country, uh, in this area. Um, but there was a time where where slavery, by and large, was seen as a moral option. Uh, matter of fact, even a good thing. I was doing some research on this. I found a letter from a, a guy named Stephen Dodson Ramsier. He was a cadet at West Point in uh, 1856, and he would go on to become a Confederate general. But this was just a letter that he was writing to his friends. And uh, he was talking about the election that had just happened. There was James Buchanan got elected. he was a pro-slavery candidate. but he saw that the, the country was potentially moving towards civil war, because it was so divided over this issue. But many, many in the South actually saw slavery as a good thing. He said this: "Look at the vote of the North in the late contest. An overwhelming majority for a renegade, a cheat and a liar, only because he declared himself in favor of abolishing slavery. The very source of our existence, the greatest blessing, both for master and slave, that could have been bestowed upon us. So here's a guy, he's espousing a view that was actually common amongst a lot of people that he lived, from where he lived, saying slavery is a blessing for both the master and the slave. We obviously see it as immoral now. Many people saw it as moral back then. You know, there were times where wars of aggression for territorial expansion were seen as, like, good. <laughs> like, Roman legions would go out and they would just conquer these new territories and they would be welcomed home with heroes' welcomes, right? Like, now, you know, Russia starts a war of aggression in Ukraine. The whole world condemns it as bad. We say, no, we don't do this anymore. But throughout most of history, that was a common thing that people would do. And the only people that thought it was bad were the ones that were getting attacked. You know, there was a time where polygamy, the practice of having multiple wives, was seen as perfectly acceptable practice. Uh, some cultures where this is still happening today, and even some of the most extreme things like child sacrifice, genocide, pedophilia, even these things have been seen as morally acceptable by groups of people in certain cultures and certain places. So we have to come to a point where we say, hey, okay, we have rejected this as a society for us here today. Praise God. I'm thankful that we have rejected so many of those kind of things. But on what grounds do we call them evil? We have to ask, how do we know that something is right and something is wrong? What allows us as the modern American to be the authority that decides what is moral and what is not? And even if we have come to see to clearly what these things are that, that I've talked about, that they're wrong, how do we know that, there are sti- that there's not still things that we're tolerating, celebrating, that might actually be evil? Many throughout history have done this, right? Celebrating things that we now see as evil. And there are some places where I feel that our culture is actually doing this as well today. You know, um, this is not new. God rebuked his people through the prophet Isaiah, well back before even the time of Jesus, for living in this way, where they were seeing good things as evil and evil things as good. He, He wrote this, Isaiah 5, 20 to 21, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. I'm hoping that by now, I've been a little bit philosophical with you, so if you don't like that, I'm sorry if that's been dry for you. But um, what I'm trying to help you see is that there's a danger of having morally compromised, sinful people be the ones who try to decide the standard of what is good and evil, or what is right and wrong. Our culture greatly desires to be the judge of this, but we simply are not qualified for this task on our own. We can't do it. And so what I want to do this morning is expose the prevailing message that our culture sends about morality I want to show what it results in, and then I want to show what God teaches us about morality and what that results in. So let's pray, and then we'll we'll dive into that. Um, God, we just thank you that you're a good God, um, that you teach us what good even is, God, that there's, there's a real meaning to that word good, and that you define it. God, we ask that uh, you would be with us this morning and that uh, you would help us to have hearts that are just given over to you, Lord, that that we would look to you and, and care more about what you say is good rather than what our own perceptions may be or what our culture around us may tell us. God, be the one that guides us, be the one that shines your light in our hearts and our minds. We love you and we pray this in your son's awesome name, amen. Okay, so last week we started this series called Kingdom Culture. And uh, in this, we're going to be uh, looking at how we should live as citizens of heaven. Uh, when you become a Christian, you are a new creation. You've become a new citizen where you're, this earth is not really your home anymore. Yes, we live here, but we kind of live here as strangers, and that our real home is with the Lord. Our culture should be defined not by the one that we're living in right here, but by the new culture that we have become citizens of, which is heaven. Right? And so that's kind of the premise that we're going to be working off of throughout this series. Uh, We live amongst a culture here on this earth that affects so much of what we think, say, and do. And this culture can influence us in greater ways than we might think. So in this series, we're going to be looking at different ways that the culture of God's kingdom compares to the earthly culture that we find ourselves living in today. And so today we'll simply be compare, comparing that source of morality of the two cultures and seeing what that results in. So let's go back to that Isaiah passage that I just read, because that was kind of the main thing that's inspiring what I want to talk about this morning. Uh, I'll, I'll read it again for you since it's short, it's just two verses, Isaiah 5, 20 to 21. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. There's a few interesting things I want to point out about that passage. Uh, first is that this culture that Isaiah is speaking to is making judgments about morality. Okay? Uh, this is shown by the very fact that they're calling certain things good and they're calling certain things evil. Whenever you're doing that, if you're calling something good, you're calling something evil, you're making a judgment about morality. Now, the second thing we see is that these judgments were different from the judgments that God makes, right? The the culture is saying a certain thing is good. Now, Isaiah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, is saying that certain things are evil, that they're calling good, right? And vice versa. So we see that there's two different opinions between this culture and between God on their judgments of morality. And three we see that these judgments that they're coming to are the product of their own opinions, right? How is it that they're coming to disagree with God? Well, we see there in verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. So when we start to believe that we are wise in our own eyes, clever in our own sight, when we start to believe that we're able to know better than what God has to say, this is where we start to come into a zone where we might start to call the things that God says that are good, evil, and the things that God says that are evil, good. Now, when I read this, I feel like it could be written to our culture today, right? Because we do all of these same kind of things. We make judgments about morality, right? People still use terms like right and wrong all the time. Uh, it happens with great frequency. Um, people want to, to get on the internet a lot of time and tell you exactly what's right and what's wrong and, and why we should uh, should cancel this person or why we should support this or, or whatever else. We We make these kind of judgments all the time. Now, the other thing is that these judgments in our culture are oftentimes different from the ones that God has made. You know, that's not true for everything. There's some things that our culture does that are actually in line with God's judgments of good and evil, right? There's actually a decent number of things. For example, we've uh, at least come to a point where we've agreed that racism is bad. And we we don't want, we we see the value of all people, all races. uh, Equally, that's a really great development in in our culture. And, And frankly, it's taken a long time to get there. But by and large, I feel like that's where we are as a culture. That's good. That's in line with the heart of God. Um, I I feel like as our culture, at least here in the United States, we've pretty much uh, come to an agreement that it's important on some level to take care of the poor, the needy, the less fortunate. We have uh, certain programs and laws and stuff that are in place to help people like that. That's good. That's great. But there's other places where we reject what God has to say about something, and we say the exact opposite, okay? Um, One of the areas that we do this with is sex, right? Now, I'm going to preach a whole sermon later this semester on kingdom culture sexual ethics, Um, but just to, I want to mention it briefly because I think that we've gotten this backwards in a lot of ways. Our culture has taken various forms of sexual morality, whether that's homosexual behavior or other sex outside of marriage, and it celebrates that as something that is good, oftentimes even calling it love, right? But that's not how the Lord treats those kind of things, These, those kinds of practices are prohibited in scripture, not for our good. We also see this in how uh, our culture, for the most part, views unborn children, right? We take what's evil, which is the act of killing a child in the womb, and we call it good by saying, well, it's actually about women's choice or autonomy over a body. I see a lot of people in our culture doing this with evangelism, right? Something that's good, which is going out and actually spreading the good news and letting people know about Jesus is called evil, is, oh, you're trying to impose your religion upon others. So there's a lot of things that we make a moral judgments about in our culture that are backwards compared to what God says. And these judgments of our culture are the products of our own opinions, just like the people in Isaiah's day, that they become wise in their own eyes. We have the same issue, Our culture believes so much in finding truth inside of yourself. There are so many messages in our culture that support this, right? Like think of the phrases, follow your heart. Live and let live, to each his own, you do you. Like whatever, all these kind of things where there's this idea that you've got the truth inside you, you need to just pursue what you think is right and it will all work out. The basic idea is that morality and self-fulfillment are basically seen as the same thing. Anything that gets in the way of self-fulfillment is seen as evil and wrong. And even in the cases I referred to, where our culture is out of line about sexuality, abortion, evangelism. Um, the resistance all comes back to the idea that God's way might require someone to do uh, to not do what they want, and it could get in the way of their self-fulfillment. You know, some are describing our culture now as post-Christian, and what they mean by that term, is uh, that, that we are a culture that has been very exposed to Christianity, but decided that it's something that we want to move past. And so the post-Christian culture is actually almost a reaction against Christianity, to where it's no longer saying we, uh, it's irrelevant or we don't care about it, but it's actually saying, no, we've seen that, we don't like it, and we're going to reject it. Okay, And I actually feel like I've seen this shift even within the past 15 years, uh, just kind of in my interactions with people. In my lifetime, I've noticed this shift. Um, It used to be uh, that it wasn't uncommon for people to say, okay, even if I'm not a Jesus follower, even if I don't really believe, I can at least respect that Christians are moral people and they have a pretty good framework and good things that they're trying to do in society, even if it's not for me. I actually don't think that's the culture that we live in anymore. Uh, I remember having a friend in college that I talked to who I was reaching out to, and he would say, hey, Grant, you know, I'm not a Christian. I'm probably not going to become a Christian. I'm not really close. Um, but it doesn't mean that what I think you're doing is bad. Like, he respected the, the work that I was trying to do. Um, I, I don't think that's where we are at this point. I think in many ways, our culture is turning to a spot where Christianity is actually seen as immoral in many ways, and that it's not just, oh, something that's irrelevant, but it's something that's immoral. And that we've moved to that spot of saying, oh, these things that, that God says about, oh, you, you have to know Jesus, like you have to trust in Jesus to be forgiven of your sins, it's immoral and, and uh, closed-minded to say something like that. You want to teach me a sexual ethic that's outside of what I think is right? That's immoral for you to tell me that I can't do what I want to do in this area. Uh, you, you know, so on, like things like that. I, I feel like that's kind of, in many ways, the, the way that our culture has moved. And as arrogant as we may be in thinking that we're moving past Christianity, we are hopelessly lost without the direction of God, and the result will not be good for us. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way which seems right to a man, but its, but its end is the way of death. And man, I think that this is true. As much as we want to be people that build our kingdom without the king, I really don't think it's going to work. For all of our advancement that we have, for all of the wealth that we have in our society, we still have horrible struggles with mental health, depression, anxiety, suicide. We need something that's deeper than, than just trying to do the best we can as ourselves. We're smarter than ever before, but our hearts are still corrupt and in need of direction from God. And so we can't buy into the message to just follow our hearts, right? Jeremiah seventeen nine actually tells us that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't let that be our only guiding principle. And so in the kingdom culture, we don't just follow our heart, but rather we follow the king. God himself is our standard of morality. Psalm 111.7 says, The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. When you think about how God is the creator of all things, you have to understand, God is the one that gets to set the very definition for what is right and what is wrong. He, by his very nature, is good. There is no such thing as this, like, force of morality that that God is under, but rather God is the creator of morality. He's the creator of what is right. He himself is the standard by which we have to judge what is right and what is wrong. You start to see why we, we can't really ever bring a charge against God for being immoral. He himself is the only one that's even able to teach us what's right and what's wrong. And so because God's the one that dictates morality in the kingdom, that means that our culture uh, is not where we should look to for guidance, but rather we need to look to him. And how is it that God wants to guide us, his people, in knowing what's right and what's wrong? Well, one, he guides us through his written word. You know, Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Praise the Lord that He's given us His written word, right? Because we've seen how easily our hearts can be corrupted and led astray and how much cultures can even vary and and, uh, change their opinions about what's right and what's wrong. Praise God that He's given us a standard by which to to measure our ideas. And we can decide, well, well, is something right? Is something wrong? We can measure it up against His word that's that light to our path. You know, also He gives us Guidance through his Holy Spirit. Jesus called the Holy Spirit even the Spirit of truth. Look at what he said in John 16, 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. God's given us his written word, and as Christians, he's given us his Holy Spirit in that, remember, God is actually starting to transform our minds so that we're conformed to his will. That's what Romans 12 talks about. Uh, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God wants to transform our minds, and he does this in many ways through his spirit, his spirit producing fruit in us. And then also, he guides us through his church, right? God has brought us together as a, as a collection of people that are able to seek him together. And when we do this, uh, there's a better chance that we're not going to be led astray by whatever various desires we may have. You see the church coming together in Acts 15, for example, to decide, is it right for, uh, to have to m- impose the law of Moses upon uh, Gentiles that are coming to faith? We see that God's given us teachers in the church to help guide us. We see that uh, the church is even there to help discipline and correct people when they start to go astray. And so when we come together to discern the voice of the Lord, it's more likely that we'll be able to do that accurately. Now, with all these kind of things, God's given us these great tools to know what's good and what's right. But still, we have to be careful that we actually want to seek his will, because even these things can be corrupted, right? Like, people can twist the scriptures. They do, the, the Bible itself warns about people that twist the scriptures. People can say they have a word from the Lord or from uh, leading from the Holy Spirit that's not actually from him. Uh, there's people that can be wolves in sheep's clothing that come in among the church and, and try to deceive. However, if we come with an honest and sincere heart before God, he's given us the tools to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong, what he has told us what's right and what's wrong. And man, may we be people that desire that and that understand our need for that. You know, there's times where what God says is right may rub against what we think or what our culture thinks is right, or what God says is wrong will be different from what we think or what our culture says is wrong. And it's in those times that we have to understand that we are limited in what we can process, like we're limited in what we can see. We are not wise on the level that God is. And this is where, as part of the kingdom culture, we submit to his word rather than deciding to just go with what our own heart may want. And you know, if we do this, honestly, God wants to lead us into blessing. Like, God is never after robbing your joy. The reason that he gives us commands is because he loves us. And as we follow those kind of commands, just as I I read that proverb earlier, there's a way that seems right to man, but it leads to death. Well, here... If we follow the the way of the Lord, it leads to life. Jesus said that he came to give life abundantly. Look at the description in Psalm 1 of the man that meditates and acts on the law of the Lord. Said, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. God is not, in any of his commands, trying to make you wither, right? He's not trying to take away your joy. He wants you to prosper, Right? And that's the, the man that, that meditates on the law of the Lord and walks in that way. So it's like a tree that's uh, planted by a stream of water. It's always got a source to stay healthy. And we have to be people that not only meditate on the word of God, word of God but act upon it. And Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 24 to 27, which by the way is... <coughs> was the way that he wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's going through all of these different things that that he's correcting a lot of misunderstandings that were happening in their culture about what was moral. And he ends by saying this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Man. First, we need to be people that hear what is good from the Lord, but second, we need to be people that act on it. You know, as Jesus was, was combating the culture that he found himself in, helping correct what they thought, uh, th- th- correct their understanding of right and wrong, they heard him. The question was, what are you going to do about it? You can either take what you've heard and you can ignore it and be like the guy whose house is on the sand and it falls when the storm comes, or you can take it and act upon it and be like the guy whose house is built on the rock and it stands through all the storms. There's blessing that comes with knowing the Lord and living according to God's word. It doesn't say that the storms won't come, right? Matter of fact, the storms are coming to both houses. The the, the difference is just the way that they weather it. So man, may we be people that come to a more accurate view of who our God is and a more accurate view of who we are. Yes, we're created in his image. Yes, we're the pinnacle of his creation. Yes, we're valuable. Yes, he loves us so much. Yes, he's given us a certain degree of wisdom, But it's not enough for us to decide that we get to be the judges of what's right and wrong. We have to look to God for this. And know that he is not trying to rob our joy, but rather trying to lead us into what's actually good life. So may God be our standard of morality, rather than our own heart, our own culture, or any other source that we may be tempted to run after. And if we do this, I believe that not only will we be blessed, but those around us are going to be blessed as well, as we start to bring more of that kingdom culture into this earth that we live on. Let's pray. Um, God, I thank you that um, you are our God. I thank you that you are worth uh, obeying, that, that you know what's good and right, that you're perfectly wise. God, I thank you that you don't lead us astray in what you say, and God, I just pray that you would give us hearts that, that want to be in line with what you say is good and with what you say is evil. I pray, Lord, that we would be people that have our minds uh, not conformed to the pattern of this world, not conform to the culture that we live in, but that they're transformed by you. God, we confess that um, we're limited. We confess that we need you to show us what's good we need your word that's the, the light to our feet the lamp to our path we, we need it God we need your spirit to guide us we need uh, your church to, to, to help us discern your voice and so God we just uh, ask that you would be worshiped in this time a musical worship that we're going to be entering into Lord, we ask that you'd be glorified and that you'd work in our hearts. And Lord, if there's, if there's something that needs to change in us, even to where we start to see things differently, if there's an area that, that we're calling good that's actually evil, an area that we're calling evil that's actually good, I pray that you'd even just shine light on that to us. I thank you, Lord, that you, you give grace know our weakness. You, you know that, that we're going to fail, we're going to mess up. We know that many of us may have had wrong opinions on things and acted in, in, in line with those wrong opinions. But God, I thank you that you're merciful for us, and I pray that um, if we've been in error, that we would just be able to find mercy in you, find grace in you, find forgiveness, find restoration. And find hope in knowing that you're going to lead us in the right path. Thank you, Lord. We love you. And we pray this in your son's awesome name.